Hi, this is Anya, a.k.a. Strangely Literal. And I'm Alan, and this is Shadows and Shamblers. And we're going to be discussing each episode of the new Stars television show, American Gods, as they air. So we really want to be able to hit the ground running with episode one and focus on the TV show itself. So we're going to take some time now and introduce ourselves a little bit, talk about why this show, why this podcast, and some of our pre-existing relationships with the source material, which is, of course, the amazing book by Neil Gaiman. So I'll start by asking you, Alan, since this podcast was your idea, uh, why this show? Uh, This is my favorite Neil Gaiman book. I've read a bunch of his stuff. And uh, I was very excited when I heard that they were making a television show. And even more excited as all the cast info came out. Um, I'm a big fan of Ian McShane. We're going to talk about Ian McShane so much during this show. It's going to be fantastic. I love that guy. I remember reading this book when it came out. And uh, I flew through it. It was the easiest Neil Gaiman book I've ever read for me to get from cover to cover. Uh, I think I read it in like two days, which is a total record for me. Uh, (laughs) I actually have like a little bit of a reading disability, so it's hard for me to read things quickly. And I just stayed up with this book at night and woke up early in the morning to continue it. Um, A big part of why I love it is because I have a personal interest in world religions and uh, in the history of religions and in American history. And this book intersects with those things in a way that is extremely fascinating to me. And so it kind of trips all my triggers. And from everything that I've seen of the show, they are going to be leaning into those themes. And so I'm very excited to watch it. And I really wanted to have a forum to talk about what's going to be important about the show, what is important about the book. And I needed a super smart person to do that with. And so I talked (laughs) to you and asked you to do it. What about you? Um, What, what's your history with the book? um, Well, thank you for that compliment. Um, So I actually read this book when I was in high school, which must've been right after it came out. Um, Maybe not immediately, but a couple years after that. And I loved it. Like you, I sailed through it. Um, I remember I was like reading it on the uh, subway on my way to work that summer. And I like missed my stop a couple times and ended up being almost <laughs> late. I was just really taken with the premise of the book and what he did with it. There's a few things in particular that still stick out with me today, even though I've actually forgotten a lot of the book, at least up until I started rereading it a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I guess when I heard you were looking for someone to podcast with, I thought, you know, this is something that I'm interested in and that I think I could do. Um, Well, part of the reason why I asked you to do the podcast is because I have these problems when it comes to stories, I tend to look very deeply into stories that may not merit the deep look. And it's difficult for me to tell the difference and, or if I'm wasting my time, like when I sit my wife down and go, 
you see the thing about Lilo and Stitch too, Stitch with a glitch is that it's about uh, original sin and the way, and she's like, no, it's a cartoon, Alan. <laughs> it's uh, it's not about that. And I'm like, yes, but in, in the Care Bears movie, there's the socio-religious implications of finding a new people group who believe differently than you do. And it's uh, no, actually it's not. And I'm like, but it is like, I feel it in my heart. And so I like stare down into this abyss of story and it is staring back at me and I need someone who can pull me back from it and say, you're looking in the wrong direction. Like I need a scully to my molder. I need someone more grounded <laughs> than me. And uh, I like that that comparison, especially since I am a scientist. Although I have to say, like, one of my things about X-Files is I find it really funny that Scully is a skeptic in some ways and, like, so tied to science, but then she also is so religious and just, like, accepts <laughs> Catholic dogma. Anyway, but that's neither here nor there. Growing up in high school, English class was always my worst. Like, I could write well persuasively and I could read well, but I was never good at the actual story analysis. Getting really into Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I think, sort of opened that up for me and allowed me to to be able to really do story analysis in a way that I never had been able to before. But I think I still hold some of that sort of like skeptic uh, pers- perspective with me. You know, like it has it has to be. It took a whole show about like no, these demons are actually demons for me to like be able to really appreciate metaphor. So (laughs) we're kind of on uh, opposite ends of the spectrum, maybe as far as that goes. I think so. I am, I am the cheapest of dates when it comes to a story. A story is like, listen, uh, people can walk on walls in this story. And I'm like, yeah, people can walk on walls. That's yeah, that's totally a thing that people do. And, uh, I'm there for it. Like whatever the story wants to give me, I'm going to, I'm going to take it. But I mean, it doesn't mean that I don't have discernment. And then after the fact, I can kind of analyze it. Um, I think we both met on the story wonk forums and, and uh, like you said, with Buffy the Vampire Slayer and analyzing the structure of a story that uh, show in that forum really helped me to become more objective about the way that I analyze the stories and take in all the information. And so I think that's part of what we're going to try and bring to this show is uh, look at all the pieces, kind of pull it apart and think about it carefully and look deeply into it. Yeah. So given that we've both read the book, I think we should probably talk a little bit about what role the book is going to play in this podcast. So are we going to be potentially spoiling anything that may happen in the future that we know from the book? Are listeners who haven't read the book going to feel like they're missing something as they listen? (laughs) I hope not. We are not going to include spoilers during the discussion of the show and be like, as you know from the book, da-da-da-da-da-da with this character. That's not going to be the approach. In fact, I would say that the show is really its own story uh, and that we have to kind of approach it that way because these storytellers, even though they're adapting the book, they're not really beholden to what happens in it. They're, they're going to have to change things. There's no way around that. Um, when the book 
I think the book came out in like 1990. Yeah. So there's been a lot of changes in the culture. I was just going to say like, not a big spoiler, but there are things when you're going through and reading the book, things like pay phones and, you know, where it's like, okay, yeah, this was like clearly written before everyone had cell phones. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, GPS and stuff like that, like they're driving around, they get lost. It's like, that's not a thing that happens to people anymore. So they're going to have to change stuff. And that's going to change the direction of the story. And then, you know, there's also extra characters uh, that weren't in the book. And Neil Gaiman, when he wrote the book, was under no obligation to like, I'm going to introduce a character. That character does not need to show up, you know, every chapter the same way that you hire an actor and and you're like, hey, uh, we only need you for one episode. It'd be like, well, then you're not going to get very quality actors because they want a paying gig. So they need to write it in such a way that Mad Sweeney shows up, you know, for multiple episodes. It's going to change the shape of the story. So, yeah, spoilers from the book will not be a thing. But I think we do want to talk about the relationship of the show to the book. Yeah, and that's sort of how I imagine it going, that we're not going to be, we're not going to be using the book to anticipate things before they happen. But as things unfold, we can maybe talk about differences between the book and the show to highlight choices that the the show made and maybe talk about why they made those choices and whether they're effective choices or not. Exactly. Okay. So where do you fall on the idea of death of the author? And so for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with this term, it's basically the idea that a work, either a TV show, a book, movie, whatever, should be judged solely based on its content and not the creator's intentions or biography or background or tweets about it afterwards. And it actually, it comes, I was looking this up for the show, it comes from a 1967 essay by the French literary critic Roland Barthes, spelled with an S on the end because he's French. And... um, (laughs) It's actually a pun on the title of a 15th century book of Arthurian legends called The Death of Arthur. Death of Arthur, Death of the Author. Famously, famously, Le Mort d'Arthur and Le Mort d'Arthur. So it's a terrible French pun. (laughs) And so basically the worst thing that has ever happened, a French pun. So basically, are we going to be judging the episodes just by themselves? Or do we also want to be taking into account all of the sort of like buzz and interviews with either Neil Gaiman or Brian Fuller, who's the showrunner. So what are your thoughts on that? It's kind of interesting when you think about it in terms of American gods, because before this idea is introduced, basically it it was a way to shut down conversation and limit interpretation to, to just cite like Shakespeare said this about his play. Therefore it means that, and there's no, arguing with it. Like if you see something different, it's because you're seeing it wrong. And when you think about ancient gods and their place in their culture, they're kind of the source of authority and all truth and power emanates from them downward to the people. But then with death of the author, it kind of flips that the author puts it out there, but the meaning comes from the audience. And it's whatever personally affects you. And in the world of American gods, 
the authority and power of those gods comes from the people who believe in them. So it actually kind of has this weird relationship with death of the author. Oh, that's so true. I hadn't even thought about that. Isn't that weird? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's so, that's so interesting. Yeah. I think you're right. I think I totally am with death of the author as far as the, the author shouldn't be seen as an authority on their work, right? Like the work should speak to itself, but I think you can use it as sort of information. So like as a scientist, right? Like we're trying to figure out some sort of like truth or principle behind the system we're studying. And we can take lots of different sources of information and use them to guide our inference. And so I think we can sort of think about this the same way that like, Yes, Neil Gaiman's uh, descriptions um, can give us some insight, but if he says something that we like don't see in the work, then it's it's not in the work as far as we're concerned. Yeah, that the author, the author's input has at least as much weight as anybody else's exactly, input. Yeah. Basically, yeah. But me, yeah. And I think it is important to look at that stuff, at least for me, because like I said, like I'm looking deeply into these stories, but I can only do it kind of from the matrix of information and associations in my own mind. I tend to see the same things over and over and over in stories. And so it's that's why it's so important to get the input of other people, because it can open your mind to new themes and ideas and the people who are making the stories are the people who probably thought about them the most. So their input is pretty valuable if you're going to be uncovering themes and ideas. Uh, I think it, I think it's important, but it's not definitive. Yeah. So um, speaking of that, I just, I wanted to touch kind of briefly on a few themes that have been in a lot of the articles about the show coming out recently, especially after the South by Southwest screenings. So one of the big themes that the show is going to be addressing is immigration. And I think it's an especially important theme today. So when they uh, first decided to make the show in 2014, it was before the presidential election really got started. And I don't think they really knew how dark a turn uh, our sort of country's discourse on immigration would take. At least that's my spin on it. Um, but there's a there's a really great article in The Hollywood Reporter by Lauren Huff that talks about how uh, both Brian Fuller and Michael Green, the showrunners, really are looking at the show in the context of Trump's immigration policies and how they were sort of rethinking that aspect of the book and really decided to emphasize it. So here's a couple quotes from Brian Fuller. He says, we're now telling immigrant stories in a climate that vilifies immigrants. We as Americans are under a radical political climate that tends to lean cruel as opposed to compassionate. So we are excited to tell compassionate immigration stories. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to looking at the episodes and seeing how they might be relating to sort of the political conversations that we're having today. And it's one of those things of if a story is carefully crafted and thoughtfully produced that you're going to have these themes just kind of 
jump out naturally given whatever your experience is. And uh, yeah, immigration is definitely something that we need to keep keep an eye on in the story. It's it's a big theme in the book for sure. So uh, it's it's gratifying to hear that they're gonna underline it. In yeah, the show this and then way. on a related level, um, Shadow, the main protagonist, is written in the book as having intentionally ambiguous mixed race heritage. He's described in the book as having coffee and cream skin and a mother who may have been either Native American or African American. And so I think the show takes that in a little bit different direction. But the point, uh, so this is a quote from Joanna Robinson in Vanity Fair, the point remains that Shadow is the melting pot, an an aspect Gaiman was adamant that the show lean into. So sort of, I mean, it's hard to separate immigration and race, but I think the show is going to be intentionally looking at both of those things. It's funny in the book because he gets asked by different people at different points, are you Indian? Are you black? And nobody seems to quite know what race he is. Uh, I've never thought of him until you said that as as kind of representing the melting pot uh, idea of America. But that's very true. That's interesting. And uh, and there's there's kind of a diversity in economic conditions and stuff in the show, too. So it's not just going to be, oh, look, we, we cast a black guy as the lead. Yay, us. The, I think that the story has an inherent baked-in quality of diversity to it, where it's going to be economic, it's going to be how you think, it's going to be your social status, it's going to be... Uh, your race and where you come from in the world and how America smashes into all that. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And I'm really interested too, as someone who has lived a lot of different places in America as a academic, you really basically end up having to be a nomad if you're interested in pursuing a career in academia. So I've, I've lived in the South, I've lived in the East Coast, I've lived in the Midwest, I've lived on the West Coast. Um, and I'm really excited to see this sort of like portraits of different parts of America. That's interesting. I didn't know that about you. Did you grow up that way or or like in your academic career, it's just been a fact? Like, I mean, you, yeah, you, you, get, you get like two and three year positions in different places and, you know, you're really discouraged from doing your undergrad and your graduate education in the same places because you're trying to sort of pick up different ideas uh as you go around Hmm. but yeah when when i grew up um i moved about every year to a different state um from the time basically from when i was born until yeah (laughs) until i graduated from high school i went to high school in louisiana for four years um at the same high school, but that was the most continuity my school career ever had. But before that I've lived all over the country. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I've done like road trips all over the place and stuff. So it's, uh, it's a part of that book that really appealed to me. Um, the road trip aspect of it. And it'll be interesting to see if they can fit that into a television show. I'm not sure. Yeah. I used to, um, to drive about, 1500 miles one way to and from school every summer when I was an undergrad. So I'm like, sometimes I had (laughs) friends come with me and sometimes I did it by myself, but it was, yeah, I'm familiar with the American road trip. Um, (laughs) 
And then, so the final theme that I wanted to talk about a little bit was sex and gender. So the book itself has a lot of, it's like pretty dominated by male characters. And so one of the things that, that Brian Fuller has been talking about as he's making the rounds, doing promotion stuff, um, is that, um, so here's the quote, uh, it's been quoted in like every article about it, but basically he just says, uh, we're very excited to expand on several of the female characters. The book tends to be a sausage party, uh, which is kind of accurate. Oh, nice. And it's, it's funny too, <laughs> as re I've been rereading the book very recently, there's definitely some views on gender that I feel like maybe wouldn't be in the book if Neil Gaiman was writing it again today. Um, and we can talk about those more when they come up or don't come up in the show. But yeah, I guess I'm, I'm in. Yeah. I'm very interested in what you mean. I'm That's really interested to see uh, sort of how the show interprets the book's perspective on, on sex and gender and how it relates to the world. And I feel like this is really hard to talk about without, giving away spoilers um so we'll just yeah with cut that off stuff, and say yeah. keep listening yeah. if you're interested yeah some of my favorite characters in the book are female i'll i'll okay. say that but it would be great if they're going to expand that stuff that's exciting okay to me. so final question and i guess maybe cool. this is less of a question and more of a fact vomit but um <laughs> I wanted to uh, ask you about your previous experiences with uh, other works of Neil Gaiman and the more famous of the two showrunners, Brian Fuller. Um, and so before you answer, just like give a little bit of background on each one. So Neil Gaiman is the award-winning British author of the book American Gods. Uh, his breakout work was a comic book series called The Sandman, which ran from 1989 to 1996. Then in 1990, he co-wrote a novel good, uh, called Good Omens with a fellow Brit, Terry Pratchett. Uh, in 1999, he published the novel Stardust, which was adapted into a movie in 2007. In 2001, American Gods came out. Um, it won a bunch of prizes, the 2001 Bram Stoker Award for Best Novel in the Horror Genre, the 2002 Locus Award for Best Fantasy Novel, 2002 Hugo Award for Best Novel, 2002 Nebula Award for Best Novel. In 2002, the children's novel Coraline came out. It was adapted into a movie in 2009. It also won a bunch of awards, the 2003 Locus Award for Best YA Book, 2003 Hugo Award for Best Novella, 2003 Nebula Award for Best Novella. In 2005, he wrote a novel, Anansi Boys, which takes place in the same universe as American Gods. It also won a bunch of prizes, the British Fantasy Award novel, the Hugo Award Best Novel. Um, but okay, this I found really interesting. Gaiman actually withdrew the nomination for the Hugo Award because he wanted to give other writers a chance and that it was really more fantasy than sci-fi. So I feel like there's two ways you can interpret it, right? If you take it just at surface value, like he wants to give other writers a chance, it sounds kind of douchey. But I... It's pretty cocky. I mean, but like, <laughs> from the perspective of he's already super, like, I totally get where he's coming from. Like, he's already well known. People are going to buy his books no matter what. It's not the, 
an award like well i think from the list that you've given here it's like he has a garage full of awards he's like seriously guys i'm okay yeah he's I like don't need these awards are a good way for new writers to get exposure and i think it must it must have come from the his appreciation of when he first started winning prizes and how much that helped his career and sort of wanting to give that opportunity to other writers I think that uh, Sandman won like the Hugo or something like that. It won one of the major awards. And then as soon as it won that award, they made a separate award for comic books to make sure that it never happened again. It was kind of like they slammed the door shut behind him. They were like, ah, this thing squeaked through. It's not a real book, but we got to give it to him. So he kind of has a a weird history with awards. Um, Yeah. So most recently, it seems like. Uh, there's a, a 2008 children's novel called The Graveyard Book, which won the British Carnegie Medal for Best Children's Book and the American Newbery Medal for Best Children's Book, and it was the first book to win both prizes, which was pretty cool. Um, and he also writes a lot of short stories, apparently. So now that I've given this whole list, uh, I guess my question to you is sort of what of his oeuvre you, you have a history with the French language. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It's one of those words that I've only ever read. <laughs> I think you nailed it. You got it. Okay. Yeah. So what, what works in his oeuvre are you familiar with? Um, I, when I think of Neil Gaiman, I think of American gods probably first. Like, like I said, it's my favorite. Neverwhere is the second thing that I think of. Neverwhere is like one of the earliest things that I read of his. I think I read it before good omens. And that was adapted into a BBC television show. And it's something that me and my wife quote to each other. It's kind of this story that like nobody knows about. It's it's similar to American Gods. But uh, it is one of those things that she'll say something from the show and I'll say something back from the show. And uh, so I always think of Neil Gaiman uh, and, and Neverwhere. Uh, I've seen the Stardust movie. I'm pretty sure I read the book. Yeah, so I I know Neil Gaiman pretty well. He wrote he's done so many weird things uh in his career. He's not just a novelist and a comic book guy. Like he wrote the um script and translation for Princess Mononoke, which is a Studio Ghibli film and I'm a, I know the movie, but I didn't know that he was involved with that. Yes, actually I think that that script is kind of seminal in in the way that scripts were localized after that for Japanese animation and in video games and stuff like that because he didn't just translate uh, like a lot of times you watch like old Japanese animation, this is like a whole nother rabbit hole that's an interest of mine but if you watch old japanese animation it's kind of famous for the lips not matching whatever the characters are saying and it it looks pretty silly Uh and a lot of it was like literal translation so they say some really goofy stuff and he was much more careful in his translation of the script not only in capturing the meaning of what the characters were saying instead of the literal translation he he kind of caught the cultural meaning, but also he kind of complains about it. There's like on the DVD, there's an extras where he talks about it. He says, uh, if they just would have moved their mouth one more time, we could have used the perfect word. But instead I had to find this vowel to match the way that they were moving their mouth. And so he was very meticulous in his approach uh, to that movie. And I think that it was a big part of the reason why Studio Ghibli 
was successful in America ultimately because you could watch that movie and not be thrown out by the translation. Huh. That's so, so fascinating. Yeah, he's done lots of stuff. He's He has an interesting career. Okay. So um, as far as my familiarity with the things on the list, I read American Gods in high school, loved it. I read Stardust later on, also liked it, not quite as much. Um, I think I saw Coraline the movie, and I very recently have tried to listen to the audiobook of Good Omens, and I could not get through it. Like, I loved the premise of the book, and I was really interested in what happened, but it was just so slow in the pacing and so Monty Python like it was sort of (laughs) I was more interested in the story underneath the British comedy that was sort of like floating on top and I just I couldn't do it I had I ended up just listening to other podcasts that I was more interested in instead we'll see maybe I'll revisit it sometime it's almost like two people wrote it isn't it it's weird it is it is almost (laughs) like two people wrote it um okay so Moving on to Brian Fuller, the American screenwriter and TV producer, who is, along with Michael Green, the showrunner for the American Gods TV show. And unlike Michael Green, he is sort of also a a cult following and has created a lot of shows that I'm not super familiar with, but I hear sort of have a very particular Brian Fuller feeling to them. There's the Brian Fuller universe. Apparently, a lot of people think they all take place within the same universe. Um, so he he wrote first for Star Trek Voyager and Deep Space Nine. Um, he then created a TV show called Dead Like Me, which ran on Showtime. But the premise of this is basically that there's Grim Reapers who have to harvest people's souls, hopefully before they die, and then hang out with them until they move on. I've actually, I watched a little bit of that, and I really liked it. Then he created Wonder Falls, which was on Fox, about an Ivy League-educated clerk working in a Niagara Falls gift shop who is spoken to by animal figurines. Then he worked on Heroes, which was on NBC, kind of like X-Men rewrite. People find out they're superheroes and have to deal with having powers. Uh, I say You could say that as someone who's never watched it, uh, so maybe you can correct me on that. I know you're a little bit of a fan. Yeah, uh, Pushing Daisies, which ran on ABC, which was about a pie maker who had the ability to bring people back to life by touching them and uses his ability to solve murders, um, which won a lot of Emmys and was nominated for a ton of awards. Um, and then most recently Hannibal, which ran on NBC about an FBI investigator and his cannibalistic serial killer nemesis, which um, won some Saturn awards for the best network TV series. So what's your experience with Brian Fuller? I think the Hannibal fans call themselves fanables. You know, like oh, really, uh, yeah, like Trekkies and stuff like that. I've I've always wanted to watch Hannibal because I I love, uh, I think those books are really good. The and I like the movies. I've always heard good things about it. It's just hard because I've got two little kids, and uh, that show is pretty heavy from what I understand. It's encouraging to see the success of Hannibal though, and to have him working on this because that's all about adaptation. You know, that's oh, like, yeah, and this is an adaptation, so. That's not easy to do. And, you know, to get a talent like that on this project is really good. I have seen Dead Like Me. I've watched all of that, which uh, I really love. But it's got Mandy Patinkin in it, so that's like cheating. Um, (laughs) I've watched some DS9. Well, I've watched all of DS9. I don't... Did he direct or write? 
I think it was mostly a staff writer and okay so he's a writer who has become a showrunner that's good too i think yeah 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 and when he was working on heroes i think he was also a writer and not involved in the production you can totally feel the dead like me vibes of that first season of heroes it has like this very yeah it's got like this ensemble motion to it the way that dead like me she kind of spends time with each one of the different reapers and stuff and uh now that i think about it like that kind of works for american gods too right shadow's going to be moving between all these different groups and uh we're gonna have to get to know them so yeah these this is an encouraging list of credits given what we're doing if you look at the the sort of just like two line descriptions that i mostly pulled off of wikipedia like thematically i feel like these match very well with american gods they're all about sort of life and death and the thin line between them and Mm. transgressing that line Mm um or like things becoming animated that we're not necessarily used to thinking as being alive like this hidden uh, weirdness in the world that kind of yeah. comes up and messes with you. Yeah. yeah, I can totally see why if you were looking for a showrunner for American Gods, Brian Fuller would be like at the top of your list. Absolutely. Yeah, this gets me more excited to watch the show. Cool. Yeah, well, I think we're probably about done. We've been running longer than I thought we would, which is, I think, a good sign. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, so I guess the last thing we need to do is talk just about our production schedule. Episodes of the TV show are going to be airing on Sunday nights, and we're going to try and drop our podcast episodes the following Monday morning. So hopefully you can listen on your commute to work or homework, home from work. Um, Also do your homework. That's good. Yeah. (laughs) I will be live tweeting along with episodes of the show. You can follow the show on Twitter at Shadow Shambler, and you can follow me on Twitter at Chipper Allen. On April 16th, there will be a spoiler-free review of the pilot episode on our blog at shadowsandshamblers.com, and there will be a new review posted to that blog after each episode, so please come check it out. And you can find me on Twitter at Strangely Literal, spelled... S-T-R-A-N-G-E-L-Y-L-I-T-E-R-L. That last A is missing because of character limits. Shaking my fist at Twitter. (laughs) All I needed was one more. Yeah, and so we're definitely looking forward to hearing your thoughts and comments about the show. Please tweet at us. If you know all about Brian Fuller, you're familiar with his whole oeuvre and have things you'd like to share, things that we might not notice about the episodes that might speak to something he did on Pushing Daisies or Hannibal, uh, definitely get in contact with us. And you can uh, do that by going to our website, shadowsandshamblers.com. There is a contact page. Go ahead and fill that out for us and let us know. We're going to eagerly wait all of your messages. It's going to be great. Yeah. So we'll see you next time. Shadow and Shamblers is a hollowed ground media production and is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license.